Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, Navigating the New Normal, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and technology, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plow. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a motto of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, online and donate at afrmc.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on you, our audience's support, to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is what's next in Washington, D.C. in 2024. We thank our special guest, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, E.J. Diani Jr. of the Brookings Institution, and Aaron David Miller of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. Every November, we take stock of where the latest elections have left us and what issues are likely to occupy us until the next November. In this case, next year is the big one. The 2023 political season, like any year prior to a presidential year, uh, witnessed relatively few elections, unless you count the choice of a new House Speaker. Congressional, uh, Congress wasn't up for re-election, and relatively few governorships were also. But some big trends have become obvious. Uh, the Republicans in Washington, certainly House Republicans, have handed leadership over to the party's MAGO wing and, and seem at best inexperienced at governing, if not at sometimes uninterested in doing so. Joe Biden presides over a strong recovering economy. He's passed an ambitious program and seems to get little in the way of public approval or admiration for either accomplishment. Abortion continues to drive up voter turnout, especially by women, and to deliver gains for Democrats. And foreign policy, once marked by bipartisanship, exhibits unusual divisions. The Democrats' left wing uh, is anxious over support for Israel, and the Republicans' right wing seems soft on support for Ukraine. Well, where are we headed? Uh, what might be in store for us in the coming year? We have uh, three very thoughtful panelists to address those and other questions. And you can contribute your questions uh, to, to the discussion, which we could get to in the second half hour, uh, by using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. 
Our first panelist is E.J. Dion, a Washington Post columnist and Georgetown University professor of government. E.J. writes about politics. Uh, his most recent book, written with Miles Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. E.J., thanks for joining us once again. It's good to see you. Robert, it's great to be with you always. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the people who are in office in Washington, uh, leading their parties, uh, and the prospects for some legislative uh, cooperation between them. President Biden faces re-election next year. Um, Republican Mike Johnson has just begun as speaker. Should we just count on uh, keeping the national parks open as a reasonable accomplishment uh, for this pair, or could we expect something actually being accomplished by government? No, uh, unfortunately, in legislative terms, I think keeping the government open uh, will be the big accomplishment between now and the end of the year. And I think it was fascinating that uh, Speaker Mike Johnson, clearly from the right wing of the party, he opposed the uh, deal to keep the government open that uh, that Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, pushed through with Democratic votes. And lo and behold, Johnson proposes uh, something to keep the government open that doesn't include all the cuts in government that the right wing of his caucus wanted. And he had to rely on Democrats again uh, to get that through. Um, it's an oddly configured uh, um, a proposal where uh, part of the parts of the government uh, will uh, expire, funding will expire in mid-January and the rest in February. That was a concession to the right. It really didn't help him at all uh, with the right wing. I think insofar as you see government action, I think you'll probably see it from President Biden, either with executive orders or announcements. I think he knows looking at the polls um, that he needs to do something visible on prices. And by the way, I do think the right way to think about this is not inflation, which is down, but prices which for people going into a store are still higher than they were in 2020. The, it's the spike in 2022 that is mm -hmm. still there. I think that's what's hurting Biden. I think you're going to hear a lot from him about how he's trying to bring down prescription drugs and other prices. I suspect he's going to try to move some on immigration. I think that is the other issue the Republicans think uh, could work hard against him. And as you mentioned, um, abortion is the issue that uh, really, really hurt Republicans in these off-off uh, year elections. I think we'll uh, yeah. hear about that. And then finally, I think Biden will be talking a lot about projects happening around the country because of what he passed. His his um, offensive on Bidenomics didn't work. I think that word will disappear. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to become much more concrete about this factory here and that road there um, and really copy the campaign that Andy Bashir ran, the Democrat who got reelected as governor of Kentucky, who was very much about all the concrete things he did often with the help from the Biden program, without ever mentioning Joe Biden's name in a state where Biden is very unpopular. Uh, according to the polls, we're headed toward a, a Biden-Trump rematch. Uh, the, the Economist, I, I, I should say, uh, calls that an unpopularity contest. 
and writes the following, which I want to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, the main issue in the election, according to the magazine, will not be anything conventional like the economy or foreign policy, but whether either man is fit to serve in the office. Both men will portray the other as a harbinger of the end of the country, and most members of their parties will subscribe to these competing eschatologies. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I approve of any sentence that uses the word eschatologies. Uh, and it's not entirely wrong about how each side uh, looks at the other with uh, extraordinary dread. I think the driving force in American politics right now, as the political scientist Alan Abramowitz has written, is negative partisanship. And we are polarized not because we really, really, really love our own parties, but because we really despise and fear. Uh, the other party. I have a bit more sympathy, I suspect, for Biden and the Biden record than the person who wrote that. And I do think Biden has a good uh, record to run on. But I also think the presidential elections are more often than we like to uh, acknowledge um, about negative verdicts on someone mm -hmm. else. If you think back to Carter and Reagan, um, there were a lot of people who had doubts about Ronald Reagan and finally turned to him at the end, not because they were Reagan lovers, but because they just didn't want to take another Biden term. Even FDR and Herbert Hoover way back in 1932, there were doubts about FDR, but people right. wanted to throw Hoover out. What's really odd about this election is uh, we really haven't seen a former president on the ballot again since Teddy Roosevelt uh, back in uh, 1912 when he ran as a third-party progressive candidate. Right. And we haven't seen a president come right back in to run again since Grover Cleveland uh, back in 1892. So what you're going to have is two records stacked against each other. Uh, the Economist is right in implying that an awful lot of voters dislike both candidates. That's true right now. Um, but I think the notion of a negative verdict is not new, and I think this will be a campaign primarily about which person do you not want in the White House for four years. Uh, it, it, later on, when during our discussion period in the second half hour, we'll get to the unusual circumstances of Donald Trump, who may be uh, on on trial at least in one uh, at least in one jurisdiction during much of the campaign, if not if not more than that. But EJ will. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Hang in with us. And we'll we'll come back to you, uh, EJ Dion. Uh, that's EJ Dion, and we've been talking about uh, the presidency and the Congress so far. But Emily Bazelon, who's our next panelist, is equally concerned about the courts. Uh, she's a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, uh, and she's also the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. She went to Yale Law School and uh, clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals. She's since been editor of Slate and uh, written books about bullying and about mass incarceration. Emily Baslin, thank you very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much. The uh, past couple of years, the Supreme Court has made some big precedent-shattering decisions uh, on uh, uh, abortion, on affirmative action, and in university admissions, is there anything in this year's docket with uh, with that kind of potential impact on society? That's a great question. It has been so earth shattering. It's sort of hard to come up with anything equivalent. I mean, I think what's going to happen in this term is we're going to see the court um, 
returning to some issues that it maybe hoped settled, but did not. Um, it's very likely that there'll be another big abortion case on the docket about the federal, the Food and Drug Administration's authority to regulate one of the drugs used for abortions, used for medication abortions, one of the abortion pills. Um, so that will be a returning issue. And then the court might have also hoped to settle this question of when states and cities can pass restrictions on guns, but the court just heard a case um, out of Texas that was really trying, that could help the court, I think, really clarify the rules, the standards for when cities and states can still continue to regulate um, guns, despite the court's major um, decision saying that there's an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. Um, and then, interestingly, we're going to see, and we already are seeing big cases about social media, um, which the court hasn't really addressed the kind of some of the big questions that arise about free speech protections, the sort of scope of the First Amendment when social media platforms are at stake, because those are private companies, um, they've become a sort of quasi-public square. And yet, because they're private companies, legally speaking, they're really much more like shopping malls where they can actually regulate speech. And so the court's going to step in there. And I guess the last very important dimension is the court's effect on our democracy. Um, and in the last few years, we've seen the court do a variety of things. Some of them seem to be protective of democracy. I think most importantly, the court rejected all of former President Trump's challenges to the 2020 election, and that mattered a great deal. But there obviously have been other decisions that um, you know, really allow for gerrymandering and um, other aspects, other things that largely Republicans have been doing to kind of change the rules of the game of the democracy or making it harder for people to vote. Mm -hmm. So continuing that line of cases, I think, is obviously a huge thing um, as we look forward to 2024. I want to return and ask you more about, about uh, the issue of, of abortion rights. Um, uh, you, you've written uh, about uh, campaigns to either enshrine abortion rights in state constitutions or pass other kinds of referenda. And and I'm wondering, I'm wondering uh, whether there are lessons that have been learned in those campaigns, which we're likely to see still repeated in more, in more states around the country, and and do you accept the notion that people say in Ohio who voted to have a constitutional amendment protecting abortion actually would exceed the number of people who might describe themselves as relatively open to abortion? That is that the 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 rights argument is uh, has traction that. Um, that abortion itself doesn't have as an issue, I suppose. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, look, when Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion for the conservatives on the court that overturned Roe versus Wade, Alito said, okay, well, we're going to leave this up to the voters in the states, and some of them are going to choose to have more restrictive rules than Roe, and others will choose to continue Roe. And in fact, and it's hard to imagine that Alito would have predicted this, in all seven of the states where there have been voter ballot initiatives that have gone directly to voters, the abortion protective, the abortion rights side has won. And that's seven states. It includes conservative states. You mentioned Ohio, also Kansas and Kentucky and Montana, Michigan, a purple state. And I think this is a big surprise. It was mm -hmm. certainly not what I expected when the first of these elections took place in Kansas shortly after the court's decision in 2022. 
And I think you're right that it turns out that when you present voters with a choice, a very stark choice between a ban or a near ban on abortion and broad rights, voters are choosing the broad rights. And it turns out that in Ohio, a third of Republicans supported this ballot initiative. And the safer ground that I think Republicans and abortion opponents will hope to return to is one in which you're arguing over restrictions. So there is a right to abortion, but, you know, is there a waiting period? Um, are there restrictions on abortions that take place later in pregnancy? Those are more popular stances for Republicans. But I think what we're seeing now is that now that we don't have Roe versus Wade, and, and the country's very aware of that, people understand that that kind of basic floor of constitutional protection is gone. And so something is really at stake here, and then you're seeing voters much more concerned about making sure that people have some access, that women have some access, as opposed to trying to um, make sure that you're imposing a lot of rules Voters still don't like the idea of what people will call abortion on demand or using abortion as birth control. Mm -hmm. But when you're faced with like nothing or everything, the voters are choosing something. It's not everything, but it's a lot. Have you uh, heard or heard of any any Republican politicians or strategists saying, let's just let's try to stop this? I mean, this is a loser. This is this is like prohibition. I mean, they'll they'll. There'll be states that'll continue to be dry and counties where you can't get liquor by but but basically this issue is a killer for us. Is, I mean, is that being said? Well, it's certainly being said by Republican pollsters. So mm -hmm. I interviewed uh uh veteran Republican pollster in Michigan named Stephen Mitchell, and he was a hundred percent on the record about this. Like this, we need to make this go away. The sooner it's over and sort of resettled, the better for Republicans. And there certainly are some um, former Republican officials, including a bunch of former governors in Ohio who came out in favor of issue one, which was the Ohio pro-rights ballot initiative. I think it is hard for current Republicans to take that stance. The official Republican Party stance still calls for basically zero abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you do see Glenn Youngkin in Virginia just try to run a play, which failed, but the play that he tried to run was a 15-week ban, a ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And he tried to say, this is a reasonable limit. This is like a middle compromise. And the voters, uh, you know, at least they said no to turning the Virginia legislature over to the Republicans. Yeah. So I think yeah. this really remains a big challenge for Republicans. Yeah, it's a rare case, by the way, when you might hear uh, Republicans appealing to what the norm is in Europe. Uh, you know, usually that's a Democratic argument, not not a Republican one. I, I mentioned that you wrote a book about mass incarceration, and, and you wrote about the enormous power that prosecutors had uh, had acquired in, in in recent decades, and and um, uh, and and you wrote about the prospects for reforming the system. Uh, I wonder, given given what seems to be, and at least in some cities, a a pretty sharp rise in uh, in crime, uh, and New York City electing a very a couple of years ago a very anti crime a tough cop uh, mayor, Washington D.C.'s mayor uh, uh, proposing a pretty sort of tough on crime package of getting more beds for detention rather than. Uh, sending kids who've been arrested back out right away. Uh, are, are we possibly seeing a swing of the pendulum back toward tougher law and order policies occasioned by some kind of increase in crime that we're experiencing? 
Yeah, so my book came out in 2019 and it was frankly a very fortuitous moment for my book to come out because yeah. I could make a very easy win-win argument for reform, for reducing the footprint of the criminal justice system for less mass incarceration. And the, the argument was, look, crime is going down and it's going down in places, New Jersey, the city of Philadelphia, et cetera, et cetera, where we're seeing these more progressive policies. Then we have 2020 and 21, in which in some, in many cities in the country, there is a rise in homicide and some places there's also a rise in property crime. I don't want to make it seem like it was universal. Right. But, and also, I want to make really clear that those rises, especially for violent crimes, were far, far lower than the highs we saw in the 1980s and 90s. However, a rise is bad, and people noticed. And um, there was a lot of trying to understand what was happening. I think it's still kind of too early to tell, but there's a consensus among experts landing in the realm of it's really important to remember the effects of the pandemic and also on the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, that the relationship between communities and police in some places really broke down and that lack of trust may have also contributed. So now what? We do see, I think, kind of sadly, inevitably, a uh, swing back to tougher law and order policies. It's not a solution that I think we have a lot of evidence is successful, mm -hmm. but I cannot think of an era in modern American history in which crime was rising and people continued to decarcerate. There just seems to be this um, American, I would argue, pretty knee-jerk response. Well, we better just lock more people up as opposed to thinking about other solutions, even though we have good evidence that things like cleaning up vacant lots, you know, making, put, putting in better lighting systems, um, and then not to mention the sort of big root causes issues like better jobs and education um, really do more to prevent crime. We seem to always just go right. for, you know, this particular hammer for this nail. I also think it's really important to say that the homicide numbers are coming down now. It seemed like what we were seeing was a spike. And so um, I think that's going to be really important. One thing I worry about a lot as a journalist is that when we cover just talking about crime rising makes people think it's rising even more yeah. than it is. People yeah. think crime is rising like even when it's really falling. And so that is a real challenge for the media, I think, how to cover this responsibly because we should cover real things that are happening without kind of inducing this um, fear mongering, which tends to lead to what I would argue are just not evidence-based punitive policies. Yes, I'll, I'll I'll leave you for now with the thought that one of the risks of retirement I've discovered is having time to read the Metro section uh, th thoroughly, and and reading it, I see where Donald Trump's American carnage came from. It's a it, it's it's a view of what's happening in the country that's absolutely absolutely horrifying. Anyway, uh, Emily yeah. Bazelon, thanks. Stick around. We're going to have a discussion session in a few minutes. But first, uh, after having discussed domestic politics and developments all this time, we're going to take a look at some of the things that concern Washington that are unfolding abroad. The U.S. is strongly backing Israel and Ukraine in their wars, and the success of U.S. policy in both cases is often linked to American credibility in Asia. Would Washington uh, stand up uh, similarly for Taiwan, or is the U.S. unready uh, to challenge Beijing? Uh, those are some of the biggest foreign policy issues we face, and joining us to talk about uh, those and perhaps others 
uh, is Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, Aaron's uh, main concern is the Middle East, and he worked as an analyst and negotiator in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Aaron David Miller, always good to see you. How are you? Robert, it's always good to see and hear you. Let's start with Israel and Gaza. Uh, U.S. policy, as I understand it is, uh, Joe Biden absolutely supports uh, Israel's war aims, um, even though uh, it appears that he differs with Bibi Netanyahu on what Israel's role after the war uh, would be. Uh, and uh, he says after the war, we can't go back to, to where we were before. It's on to a two-state solution, pro progressing to it. Can, can that policy hold up? Can it yield results this year? Uh, this year? I doubt it. Um, I, I guess, first of all, as far as Gaza is concerned, why, why is the president's demonstrating preternatural support for Israel? Three, three simple factors. His persona. Um, the presidential model here is Bill Clinton. They're a generation apart, and yet they're uh, love of Israel, their high regard for Israeli sensitivity, um, extremely strong and imprinted on both their political and emotional DNA structures. Second is the politics. Republican Party is the Israel can do no wrong party, Democratic Party divided. And I think uh, <clears throat> the president has to be concerned about appearing weak or allowing the Republicans to paint him with a progressive um, sort of Democratic brush. And third is the policy constraints. The cruel dilemmas in this conflict, Robert, how to prosecute a war against Hamas when it, it is, in fact, embedded um, deeply in civilian uh, populations in hospitals and avoid Palestinian casualties. We don't have a better answer for the Israelis with respect to that. How to surge humanitarian aid into Gaza during the course of this conflict. Uh, half the population, 2.3 million people, half of those people are now uh, displaced. Winter is coming. Who's going to tend to their needs? We don't have a, a, an answer for the Israelis. And finally, on the day after question, which is now a thought experiment, it may well depend on how this uh, this conflict is going to end. And I, I don't think Pythia, the oracle at Delphi, reading the best of Godin trails, could tell you right now how it's going to end. So yes, the administration stands behind Israel uh, with some asterisks. As far as the two-state solution is concerned, Biden did make this huge, huge statement, a few words, breathtaking scope, head exploding, really, that he cannot, we cannot go back to October 6th. What that means in practice is a new reality in Gaza, largely uh, driven, hopefully, by a legitimate revitalized, to use Attorney Lincoln's words, Palestinian authority, um, and uh, tethered because you won't get Palestinians to participate without a broader American position and approach, serious and credible, on creating the least bad solution ending to the conflict, which is two states. Those are extremely heavy lifts. And in an election year, it's going to be, I think, very difficult uh, for the administration to lift them. Do you, do you think, by the way, the, the, uh, uh, the Israeli government has said, or at least the defense minister and prime minister have said this is a matter of several months? and. Uh, Whenever American officials, either President Biden or Secretary Blinken, have, uh, I think every time they've they've discussed how long would be a, an appropriate operation, I believe they've spoken in terms of weeks. It's a pretty basic difference. Uh, do you can, can can you imagine? Can the United States tell Israel to wrap it up next week? You know, start start moving out. Is is that part of the relationship, or is that just unthinkable? 
I mean, well, it can say anything it wants to the Israelis. The question is whether or not this administration is too ready to impose any cost or consequence yep. if, in fact, the Israelis say no. And in 10 months, even before this crisis, in response to the most right-wing extremist, even Jewish supremacist government, history of state of Israel, this administration uh, has pursued what I would call a passive-aggressive policy. It's denied the prime minister a meeting at the White House and has not been serious about trying to do anything to uh, constrain the Israeli policies on the West Bank, which essentially are annexationist in everything, but name and continue to be. So uh, again, it's leverage. Have we used it on the Israelis? We have in the past. Um, a former President Bush, Secretary Baker, of whom I worked, yes, was not in the midst of a crisis in the wake yep. of brutality and the savage, sadistic, indiscriminate killing of civilians, which has left the Israelis traumatized uh, and angry. So they need, they'll stop when, in fact, they've satisfied themselves, I suspect, that they have enough to claim victory. And that's that's a very sketchy yep. sort of ending, um, because I'm not entirely sure what that means. Let's turn to Ukraine. Uh there hasn't been a hugely successful Ukrainian offensive uh, this 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 uh, past season. Uh, Russia seems to have stabilized its position there somewhat. Should the U.S. be open to the idea of a ceasefire on the terms of where the Ukrainians and Russians now stand, or would that be selling out the uh, the cause of Ukraine? Again, the intersection between domestic politics and uh, foreign policy. Uh, and I guess the notion of American credibility. Uh, I don't think that the administration is in any position right now, despite the, uh, the paucity of results in the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive, um, to essentially say to um, uh, Zelensky, um, the 20% of Ukraine that you do not control, uh, essentially, we're gonna we're gonna stabilize the lines, and it, it may not be a frozen conflict, but uh, you maintain most of your country, and this is about all you're gonna get. I think it's really hard for this administration, given its we're gonna you know, given its two basic um, assumptions. Number one, as long as it takes, and nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. You know, the average length of a war since uh, 1816, according to the people who track these things, University of Chicago, is uh, three months. If a war lasts beyond a year, according to uh, uh, their studies, uh, it's likely to, likely to last 10. And I think what we have here is clearly uh, a conflict that is going to continue, uh, in large part because Putin has no stake or incentive Sanctions haven't done it, and nor are there going to be internal disruptions in Russia that that that's going to prevent him from continuing to prosecute the war. So we're in for a long ride. The question is whether or not the domestic consensus in the country, which is breaking to a certain degree, uh, anything Israel wants, absolutely, uh, but no on Ukraine with respect to many Republicans. That's going to that that course is going to continue to rise the, uh, the more we get into 2024 and the less results the Ukrainians can achieve on the battlefield. One, one other question. I mentioned Taiwan. Uh, it seems that at least since the Obama administration, the U.S. has been trying to, quote, pivot to Asia, uh, to acknowledge the, the significance of our relationship with China, 
uh, the significance of Chinese ambitions in in in, in the region. Uh, have we done it yet? That is, has the U.S. managed to give the Far East the amount of attention it deserves, or does the Middle East keep on dragging us back there? Well, clearly, no one anticipated this. Uh, but the the pivot to in, the Indo Pacific, if you read the National Security Strategy paper uh, a year or so ago clearly says we've invested way too much of our time and resources in the Middle East, and we need to pivot to Europe. This is before Russia and Ukraine and to, and to Asia. I think the administration has certainly bucked up its alliances out there, uh, and yes, has shifted a, a significant amount of assets. The Taiwan question is another matter, though. And, and I guess the administration's strategy is to try to create enough deterrence and enough containment so that every time uh, President Xi decides, maybe I should do it now, uh, his conclusion is, well, not now. Because I don't think we have a strategy designed to prevent, it should the Chinese seriously envision uh, a um, invasion mm -hmm. of Taiwan. I'm not sure we have the uh, what is required to stop them. Stay with us, and I'm going to bring back uh, Emily Bazelon and E.J. Dion also for our, our discussion period right now. And uh, uh, and I, first, I just want to ask each of you uh, to comment on anything you've heard from your fellow panelists uh, briefly that you either want to register your enthusiastic uh, agreement with or your dissent with. Uh, E.J., uh, what have you heard from from Emily and Aaron that uh, strikes you? Well, I, I broadly agree with um, Aaron's analysis, um, and uh, the only thing there is, I do think there is a kind of rumbling for two states that you haven't heard for a long time. Uh, the possibility that that is back on the agenda, uh, or the fact that that is at least back on the agenda, I think is a significant outcome of uh, this uh, terrible conflict and these awful attacks. I wanna just go back to a couple of things Emily said um, that she noted the Republican consultant she spoke with uh, was talking about letting this issue go, the abortion issue go. I talked to a Republican pollster earlier today who said that every Democrat in the country should put a little statue of Justice Alito in their house and light <laughs> incense to him every evening uh, because of how much what he did and what he wrote has helped the Democratic Party all over the country. And I think you are hearing in Nikki Haley in the debate, she is try to walk this line and viewed in one way, it's a very evasive, I'm very right to life, but we must respect the others. If you read the English subtitles to what she was saying <laughs> in English, what yeah. she is saying is this issue is a loser. We got to kick it away. And even Donald Trump, who appointed these uh, justices, has uh, signaled that he's kind of backing away himself from a result he used to brag about. One other point on crime, I appreciated Emily's conversation on that, it was really striking in these Virginia uh, legislative races where um, if you were watching television, it was as if we were in a presidential general election. Um, <laughs> you know, they were House of Delegates and State Senate races. And for every ad the Democrats had on abortion, the Republicans had ads up on crime and trying somehow or other to say that the Democrat they were running against, no matter what they had said, uh, was an ally of defund the police and all of that, that crime campaign didn't seem to work. Yeah. Um, now, we are looking at some really close results, so maybe it got them votes, but 
in just about in so many races, the abortion issue trumped the crime issue, and it also trumped the education issue. What elected yeah. Youngkin um, in 2021, um, you know, attacks on uh, critical race theory and parental control. There was a backlash against that backlash, I think, to some degree. Yep. And the education issue was back more to worrying about, hey, we're losing teachers in our schools. We've got to figure out ways to get good teachers in again. So I think it was the, the hot buttons that really worked in Virginia in 2021 and Democrats thought would work, feared would work going forward, seemed a little less powerful. But I still think we're going to hear a lot about crime and immigration. Yes, on, on on one of those issues, I should point out as a as a resident of Northern Virginia that the uh, local school board elections, which are pretty, this is pretty granular local politics, uh, elected rather conventional liberal members to school yes. boards in Northern Virginia, where it had been thought that uh, cultural conservatives who wanted to uh, to ban certain books had, had made a lot of noise in in uh, school board meetings, but turned out to not not carry that many votes. Uh, Emily there was Bazelon. some evidence of that elsewhere in Pennsylvania, too. You're it's, right. It's, yep. Uh, uh, let's turn to Emily. Thoughts on what you've heard from your, your fellow panelists? Well, I have a question for EJ. That's something I think about a lot related to what you were talking about in terms of the Republicans in the House. You know, if you watch this and you care about the functioning of government, it just seems like a zoo and very frustrating. And then, you know, the idea that they would get that the Republicans would push out Kevin McCarthy, but then wind up like kind of back in the same place is sort of confusing. Is there a way in which this dysfunction in some ways helps or at least doesn't really hurt Republicans because they're the party of skepticism about government? And so if you just sort of tear down um, Americans' view of a functioning government, that doesn't actually um, mm -hmm. hurt you the way one, as if you're a sort of good government person, one might want that to matter. But I wonder if in a way it just makes everything seem impossible and then um, a kind of pox on all your houses from at least some swing voters. I once got an email from a Democratic reader who wrote, Republicans spend their campaigns saying government doesn't work and spend their time in office proving it. Um, and but I do think that when you look at the division of Republicans on these budget votes, about 55% or so voting to keep the government open and you know 45% or so voting the way that would lead to a shutdown, I think what you're seeing is a division in the party between, you know, there are no liberal Republicans anymore and there aren't that many moderates but there are still Republicans who kind of want government to function or understand that their job is to keep government functioning. And so they vote for these continuing resolutions to keep government going. But I think for nearly half the party, there is this view. Uh, for some, it's sort of libertarian. For others, it seems almost nihilist uh, to say that a shutdown, especially on a Democrat's watch, is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, at all, but that most a lot of the older Republicans know they made that calculation before, and it blew up in their faces. And that's why Johnson, despite how conservative he is, seemed to end up back at the position saying we got to keep the government uh, open. Uh, Aaron David Miller, uh, just comments on what you've heard from the panel. Well, just a kudo to both of them. I think um, the what, what people in this country care about are. Clearly, our domestic uh, our domestic politics and domestic issues, 
I think it was George Will who said that uh, when it comes to foreign policy, the American people want as little of it as possible. And I think that's fundamentally important um, uh, as we go forward. Um, the Constitution talks about effecting a more perfect union. It doesn't talk about uh, perfecting a more perfect world. And I think the source of so much of our uh, dysfunction lies at home, and it is critical that we somehow address it in an effort to be able to project our policy and our values abroad. I'd like to ask uh, all of you to comment on uh, the most uh, the most unusual thing that's that's likely to happen over the next twelve months, which is a uh, a, a a criminal trial, at least one of uh, of of the most likely Republican candidate for 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 president. Uh, we haven't. Uh, we haven't had that before. Not many people have had that, uh, uh, frankly, before. Uh, and I'm I'm just curious. One question that 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 uh, has arisen is: uh, Should um, at, at least in the in these central cases that are about the the the, the core accusation against Donald Trump, the federal January sixth uh, trial and the Georgia trial, um, should they be televised? Uh, should these be? Uh, should the federal courts make an exception? Uh, perhaps Emily, you can explain to us what that might entail to make an exception. Um, is it something that um, is important for Americans to see? Uh, is it something that could turn into a a circus, as the special prosecutor has uh, said in a court filing? He fears it might. Uh, Emily, let me let me ask you first. Um, uh, would you um, you you could of course end up covering one of these trials if if, uh, if uh, even if it's not on television, but um, how? How how big an event is this likely to be? How big an event should it be? It's going to be a huge deal. It should be a huge deal. I think it should be televised. I mean, I'm a journalist. I like people to have more information in the world, not less. And I think that um, the way in which former President Trump is very skillful at using social media or TV, whatever's at his disposal to give his own spin on what's happening, that would be very um, it's going to be important to have actual footage of what is happening in the courtroom. And I already think the lack of that in the New York civil trial um, involving the Trump organization has been problematic. So in, I that think case, be in that case, Donald Trump can leave the courtroom where something has happened and instantly give a, a uh, but something has happened, but it, it's not available to, 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 to the audience. And he can give a briefing on what on his spin on what just happened inside the courtroom. Right. I think the problem is where your question began, the idea of making an exception. So I have generally been pretty resistant to the idea that the way, so Trump is obviously this huge breaker of rules and norms. He's the exception all the time, right? The reason we haven't had a criminal trial or a series of criminal trials like this of a president or former president is that, you know, he just presents this like unique scenario of, um, doing a lot of things that prosecutors were interested in. So I generally think it's not great for the system to respond by then breaking its own rules, that that to have a norm breaker then force um, our government or our courts into its own kind of norm breaking is a problem, both because then I think people who are uncertain or supporters of President Trump then get worried that, you know, he's right. Like the Biden administration is politically persecuting him. See, they just broke all these rules or norms. 
Um, so that concerns me. I do think that in the state court arena, which is true about the Fulton County, Georgia case, then you're in a situation where it's, it is more normal for trials to be televised. Um, and then that would not be making an exception in a way that people could get super suspicious about. I think that trial, however, is likely to, um, you know, not take place before the election. It may be that none of these trials take place before the election, but that one seems like the least likely just because it's complicated and there are 19 defendants or however many are left now that various people have pled guilty. Um, so I don't know. I guess I still would come back, even though I am nervous about making exceptions that are responses to President Trump. It does seem really important for this trial to be televised or trials and um, and I really can't help but root for it as a journalist, because I think it would just be really good to have unfiltered information about what's happening in the courtroom in front of the public. Aaron, do you have strong, strong feelings about this? Yeah, after two impeachments and God knows how many violations and transgressions of American norms and civility, uh, including, I might add, all of these indictments, um, Trump's base has not uh, shrunk at all. He remains the presumptive nominee. I don't think the issue, whether it's televised or not, is key. The question is, if there are trials before the election, will he be convicted? That in any that appears to be some kind of, I don't know, uh, red line uh, that seems to trigger movement in the polls. So the, the issue to me is, is conviction. I'm not sure, frankly, that that even a conviction is going to dent the uh, the popularity of this man. EJ? I think uh, two things. One, I think a conviction, there's some polling, including uh, some one by the New York Times, and there was another out there that suggests that a conviction could move some share of voters, that, that, that some piece of the Trump constituency, not the hardcore base, but people who are voting for him over Joe Biden might move away and say, we don't want a convicted felon uh, as president. Uh, I agree with Emily on on the uh, uh, broadcasting the trial. It's the first time I think I've ever agreed with Trump's lawyers and not with Jack Smith's reply. And I think the reason is straightforward. We live in this time of misinformation, disinformation, a lot of propaganda. Uh, the Trump folks are already saying that these trials are illegitimate and they're political and I think if people could actually watch the process uh, and have it all in public, there would be less opportunity uh, for that. It's not to say people still won't try to distort um, what happened, but you know, it's uh, always better to be able to say, do you believe him or your own eyes? And so I'd really like these trials to be public. Here's a question the, for Aaron David Miller and whoever else wants to comment on it. Uh, the question is, considering that Mahmoud Abbas is 88, his birthday is November 15th, by the way, uh, and he is in the 18th year of a four-year term as Palestinian president, and considering Israel's determination to oust Hamas from power, is there a credible Palestinian leadership uh, that could take over in Gaza once the fighting stops? Uh there's a credible Palestinian leader or leaders, collegial, that might, if Mahmoud Abbas passes from the scene, Gaza's another proposition now, hmm. because it requires a degree of legitimacy that no West Bank leader right now has. 
uh, Mahmoud Abbas or his successor, with, with one exception, perhaps, Marwan Barghouti, who's serving a five lifetime sentences, who appears to have cred, not just with Hamas, but with the general Palestinian public. Um, but I, I don't see any leader under, any West Bank leader uh, under these circumstances that could ride into Gaza on the back of, a, of an Israeli Merkava tank under these circumstances. Uh, interestingly enough, on October 6th, a poll was done by the Arab Barometer uh, in, in uh, cooperation with Khalil, Khalil Shikaki's polling organization. Mm -hmm. uh, 790 respondents, October 6th, before the 7th, who would you vote for as Palestinian Authority president? 12% for Abbas, 28% uh, for Ismail Haniyeh, the He's head of Hamas, the political leader, of Hamas, and uh, 30 plus percent for Barghouti. Yeah. So I think that sort of answers the question in terms of how Gazans feel uh, about Abbas. Now, I don't think in, the, in these circumstances, you need an empowered Palestinian leader. And the only way to do that seems to me is to put in process a political effort to end Israel's occupation through negotiations. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Okay. Uh, here's a question for uh, EJ and whoever else is interested. What are the prospects of a third party candidate influencing the presidential race? I think they're pretty substantial given how close the margins are likely to be in the swing states. Um, uh, Biden had a pretty healthy margin in Michigan, but it was about 80,000 votes in uh, Pennsylvania. It was, if I remember right, in the 2022 or something like that uh, in um, uh, Wisconsin and about 10,000 in Arizona and Georgia. So a third party candidate, as in 2000, as in 2016, could have a big effect. Um, there's a debate about which candidate would take the most votes from whom. Um, but I think the consensus of the pollsters, the Wall Street Journal had a pretty good study of this, is that um, the third party is more likely to take from Biden than from Trump. And certainly a, a moderate or moderate conservative candidate on like a no labels ticket uh, would seem more likely to hurt Biden. So, yes, uh, a third party candidate could have an enormous effect on the race. And then we, you know, that um, uh, Cornell West, um, you know, I don't know how many ballots, uh, how many um, uh, states he's going to get on the ballot on. Uh, but um, he could take votes away from Biden. He could also have a demobilizing effect on the black vote, which could be hard for Biden. And, um, you know, the Green Party hurt uh, Hillary Clinton um, the last time and certainly hurt Al Gore in 2000. So I think the effect could be substantial. Any other thoughts on, on third party candidates this year or? No, I mean, just yeah. to say the very obvious to back up EJ, it's going to be, it could very likely be super close. And so then even someone yeah. who just shaves off a fraction of votes in a few key states could swing the election. Uh, I guess uh, one piece of news recently uh, about the coming elections is that Joe Manchin of West Virginia won't seek reelection. Is it? He's the West Virginia senator, the only Democrat who's been able to win statewide in that state for uh, for quite a while. Evidently, he, was, he didn't look too good from winning statewide this year. 
but does that mean, AJ, that it's a 51 to 49 Democratic majority in the Senate right now, and uh, West Virginia is a is essentially a write-off to the Republican Party, we think. Uh, what does yeah, that do I, to, the to the Democrats' chances of maintaining any majority in the Senate? Oh, it's going to be very hard, even if Manchin had lost, which would have lost a seat for them. Uh, if he had stayed in the race, the Republicans were going to have to spend quite a bit of money and pay a lot of attention to that race. It's why Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, made sure a whole lot of money got spent early knocking Joe Manchin. He was Those ads were to encourage Joe Manchin to make the decision that he made. And uh, almost all of the vulnerable seats or potentially vulnerable seats are held uh, by Democrats to have, you know, when you when Democrats are talking about making Florida competitive or Texas competitive, yeah. um, which is not impossible given the current polls, but if those are your hopes for competitive seats, you know, uh, you know, to take away from the Republicans, you know how tough this map will be for them. But the, and, and the Democratic, uh, the, the vulnerable seats would be um, Ohio, Sherrod Brown, and Tester in Montana. Um, those are probably the those are uh, two at the top of uh, uh, top of the list, but there are several others that where Democrats will probably win, but have to fight for them. And um, we, we heard. I'm, I'm curious to hear the the thoughts of thoughts of all of you on this. I mean, we had, uh, I guess, EJ mentioned uh, uh, Nikki Haley, the the former South Carolina governor and UN ambassador, and her performance in in, in the debates, uh, trying to. Uh, to as as you described it, DJ, get away from the from the abortion issue. Um, wh who appears to be? Let's let's assume that um, uh, Donald Trump, either by virtue of, uh, of of indictment or guilty plea or or whatever might happen or change of a public opinion, let's assume he isn't the nominee. Uh, who who does appear to be the uh, the strongest contender to you among those who uh, who are seeking the nomination? Would it be Haley, uh, DeSantis? Um, Chris Christie seems to have faded, but um, does anyone does any one of those appear to be a particularly strong opponent for Joe Biden uh, next November? Any thoughts, EJ? Uh, the recent polls show uh, that Haley would probably be the strongest. Um, somebody, you know, Ron DeSantis has run a really terrible campaign. It's worth remembering that. After the 2022 elections, DeSantis was running ahead of Trump uh, in the polls, and some ascribe the indictments of Trump as having mobilized his base, and maybe mm -hmm. there's something to that. Um, but also, um, DeSantis has just made one mistake after another, from that flawed announcement on Twitter to saying, you know, Ukraine is kind of a local territorial dispute. One thing after another. Um, and he's just hasn't been a particularly appealing candidate. He's his strategy seems to be to try to take away Trump's core. Uh, that's who he's appealing to, and Trump's core is unlikely to move. Um, and now with everyone else dropping out, Haley seems the um, obvious alternative. And you know, there's a lot of talk that Chris Christie, who's got a real ceiling on him, because. You know, anti-Trump Republicans are only 10 or 15 percent of that party, um, that if he endorsed Haley in New Hampshire, where he's getting about 10 percent, mm -hmm. that could make it interesting. I, I mean, you know, if you bet now, you'd have to bet on Trump. But we've seen uh, dynamics in, in primaries 
change quickly. Gary Hart got 17% in Iowa in 1984 and swept into New Hampshire because he was the second place candidate. Mm -hmm. So is that possible? Yeah. Is it likely? Probably not. But I think she's the one most interesting to people right now. Here's a question for Aaron David Miller, uh, to, uh, from from uh, somebody who's attending uh, in the audience. To what extent do you think Israel's cracking down on settler violence in the West Bank might contribute to establishing the credibility of the Palestinian Authority? That is, would a crackdown on settler violence against Palestinians enhance the credibility of the Palestinian Authority? It would, and would also diminish the authority and the street cred of any number of uh, uh, armed groups, young men, some associated with Hamas, some with uh, Palestine Islamic Jihad, but some are, who are actually independent, uh, the Nablus Brigades um, uh, being one, uh, it would help enormously. But in a uh, with a prime minister that is clearly anxious about the stability of his coalition, it's hard to imagine that he's going to take at least two repeated warnings, one publicly by the president, uh, basically to put a stop to this sort of settler vigilantism. And it, it clearly has not happened. As, as we're drawing to a close, I want to ask a question about mood of the country of, of all three of you, which is if you were to try to, or wouldn't you try to describe to yourself what, what, what American life feels like at this particular uh, moment in this uh, peculiar moment in its relationship with Donald Trump and uh, its, its politics, Wars uh, uh, that are that we're indirectly uh, engaged in. How would you how would you describe where we are as a country right now and as a people and what our what our sensibility is? I don't. It's unfair for me to pick any of you to go to first. So I'll try. I'll, I'll try Aaron. And, I think. I think, it's, I think. You know. Have you asked me that question in the sixties? Mm -hmm. Maybe in the seventies, I probably could have sought to encapsulate a mood of the majority of Americans. I'm not sure I can. Um, and I, I think that has a lot to do with the atomization of our politics and the fact that identity politics, uh, interested poli interest politics have so fragmented and segmented the country that it's hard to describe. I mean, we can describe the mood. I mean, inflation, as EJ indicated, it may be trending down, but it's still painful for so many people. There's enormous uncertainty. Uh, immigration is still a critically important issue, and the headline there and the trend lines don't look don't look good. Um, faith in our institutions seems to be diminishing and, and declining. Mm -hmm. What to what extent uh, most Americans care about that? I don't know. I asked someone the other day, could you imagine any issue that would impel? Hundreds of thousands of Americans week after week after week, 41 weeks to be exact, to go out into the streets and to fight for a relatively unified conception of what America is all about? And the answer was no. Yeah. And my answer is no as well. And that should tell you something yeah. about where we're headed. Emily? I wonder if we're going to look back on this moment or maybe on one of Biden's first term up until the um, Hamas attacks and the um, 
war in Gaza as this kind of calm before the storm. I mean, I realize that the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is also part of the picture, but I feel like we've spent so much time fighting as Americans among each other over things that are important, but perhaps have distracted us from the kind of common project of a wealthy society that um, in which there's much room for improvement, but also um, relative to the rest of the world, we mm -hmm. have a lot of good fortune and that um, the negativity of this era is kind of out of proportion with the number of problems that we really have had. I have the sense of foreboding that um, the next period could be grimmer. And so that makes me wonder if we're going to look back somewhat fondly on this These are the period. good old days, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because we don't know what's going to happen next, but I have been thinking about that a lot lately. And DJ, you have the last word and a short one, I'm afraid. I so want to say I'm really, really hopeful about everything. Uh, <laughs> but I think the mood of the country is unsettled, deeply unsettled and grumpy. And as Vivek Murthy, the uh, Surgeon General said, post-pandemic, a lot of people are lonely as well. I, just to go to um, Aaron's point, um, we agree that the country is headed in the wrong direction. 78% of us in recent AP poll but we are completely divided on the reasons for this. Uh, and on there are many Americans who say Donald Trump's presence in public life poses a direct threat to our democracy and he must be stopped. And Trump's supporters say that all of this is the fault of liberals and cultural change that they can't stand and Joe Biden and other people. Uh, and so I think the and Americans hate being divided, and they're completely divided about how to get rid of the division. Yeah. So it's a very difficult moment for us, I think. Well, thanks to all of our guests, E.J. Dion, uh, Emily Bazelon, and Aaron David Miller. Uh, many thanks as well to Joshua Plout, Roni G. Vigliano, and Ryan Sutton from American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, uh, which produces Global Connections, and also to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3 national charitable organization which represents in the United States uh, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the website is www.afrmc.org. And this special message this month, at this time when Israel and Hamas are at war, uh, please consider a donation to AFRMC's Emergency Medical Relief Fund to help the hospital in Israel as it handles wartime casualties. Uh, you can donate online at www.afrmc.org. Join us uh, next month uh, for our program, Freedom of Speech on Campus. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Stay healthy and stay safe.